and I remember taking my son to the footy and I said to him, Christian, you know, many years ago, Dad owned the MCG for a night and he, he just looked at me and laughed and said, no, no, the MCG's for football, Dad. Welcome once again to At The G, I'm Anthony Hudson and it's episode three and the second part of our look back on the great experiences had at the MCG during the 2006 Commonwealth Games. And later in this episode, we're going to look back with a smile on the night it all started, what with flying trams and the great Ron Barassi walking on water. Oh, he's walking. He's walking on water, Dennis. We've always said Ron Barassi can do it all. One of the uh, greatest honours in your career, do you think? Yes, most definitely. Most definitely. Now, the race most anticipated. Every major games has a designated local hero. Someone who must carry not only their own ambitions, hopes and expectations, but the collective weight of a nation's. And in 2006, it was 25-year-old Melbourne boy Craig Mottram. Mottram would take on the distance-running might of not one but three Kenyans in a truly world-class battle that would give the whole game's credibility, bring the MCG to fever pitch. One lap from glory. It's so fast. This is a remarkable race. It's an astonishing sight here with 80,000 people roaring him on. Does he have that big kick to hold? Craig did developed to be one of the best distance runners in the world at the time. And the script was written that um, this race was really made for him, Melbourne. This was the, the chance for him to just win that gold medal as he rightly deserved. So we don't get many of these moments. And Mottram was the real deal. I mean, he was a world-class athlete. And, you know, we'd sort of grown up with him. He'd run a lot at home, so it wasn't like he was a bloke that we didn't know. And, you know, the MCG, the absolute perfect scenario, would have reminded a lot of people that were old enough about 1956. So this is rare air for us. So, And those 5,000-metre races, they're, they're like watching, you know, a, a soap opera because the, each lap there's something different. So, yep, huge build-up. Would he... Would he be able to outkick them? Would he be able to break them? Could could he, you know, have a famous victory, a, a bit like Kathy had done six years earlier? So the anticipation was as high as it gets, and then the race itself was uh, fantastic. Legendary sports broadcaster and passionate athletics enthusiast Bruce McAvaney called the athletics at the MCG on Radio 3AW alongside the late Clinton Gribus. It's still hard to comprehend that Clinton lost his life at the age of just 32, less than two years after he called the Games. But I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing Clinton at his best, as heard on 3AW back in 2006. For Craig Mottram, it would be the biggest week of his running life, featuring in two of the most dramatic but contrasting races of the Games. And he well remembers the spotlight being on him 
long before he set foot on the jet. It's exciting and it's fun, but it also is challenging and daunting at the same time. And I raced the World Championships in Helsinki in 2005, which was, in essence, the lead-up meet for these Commonwealth Games in Melbourne and, and got a bronze medal. There was a lot of excitement and expectation around how I would perform in Melbourne. And I was living in Richmond, in Stanley Street at the time, in a, in a terrace house that actually overlooked the MCG. So I, I was constantly reminded of, of where it was going to be. And I was watching the evolution of the G and the track going in and all the other bits and pieces that were coming around wasn't just the athletics there were all the other venues and all the other sports that were gearing up and priming themselves for these two weeks of competition so it was very difficult to get away from it um obviously media sponsorships and things like that so trying to keep all that in balance as well as preparing physically and emotionally to run in front of a hundred thousand people when you get 12 and a half or 13 minutes to deliver what you've been preparing for for 10 years is not is not easy to do so what was your approach we tried to keep it pretty routine in that we would head to Falls Creek, which is where I would do my altitude training. We found being in Melbourne was quite overwhelming for me anyway, because I do a lot of my running around the tan and, uh, and the MCG. And I used Richmond Football Club gym to do a lot of my strength work, even though the VIS was where Collingwood now is. The VIS was an attraction for people to come through. They'd actually bring people on tours and show them the athletes training and things like that, the public to come through and, and watch. And I didn't enjoy that. So I actually contacted Richmond Footy Club and they allowed me to use the gym, which was a bit more private. And uh, But places like the tan were great, but every person that came past wanted to give you a high five or give you a thumbs up and, you know, and give you support which is fantastic but when you're just going out for a half an hour run you just want to be on your own and, and just get that part of it done so in the final six weeks we actually went to Ballarat to get out of, of Melbourne and, and train around Lake Windoree and train with Steve Monaghetti who um, had quite a big important role at, the, at those games as well so it was great to just get out of Melbourne albeit still in Victoria but focus on the job at hand which is actually really quite simple running 12 and a half laps or three and three quarter laps is not complicated but if you allow that third party noise to get into your head it becomes far more complex than it needs to be. It must be a difficult thing mentally for such a period of time in the lead up to such a big event. It was prescribed down to the to the letter in regards to what we did and we would run twice a day in the gym every day, physio three times a week, massage four times a week. The easy runs were supposed to be easy. The threshold runs were supposed to be at threshold and when you get other bits and pieces that come into it, the physical side you can cope with but the emotional drain that comes with having 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 people wanting to come running with you around the town, having a conversation about the upcoming games, how are you going to go, what do you think about the Kenyans, all this, all that. It's constantly a reminder in your, in your head and you, what you're trying to do when you're out training is just focus on you and what you can do to get yourself prepared to race as best as you can, whether it's at the MCG or whether it's at Ballon Park, Little Ass in Frankston. The difficulty with things like the Com Games and the Olympics and other big events like that is how you manage all that other noise that comes along with it. People underestimate the challenge of, of emotional stress around the pressure of big championships like that. And they can do the physical work, but the emotional drain on you wears thin and it, and it wears you down and it becomes a weight that you've got to carry. So if you're comfortable and confident enough to be able to get out of town or get out of where you think you need to be to somewhere where you can get the job done, that is probably one of the biggest reasons that I was able to perform well. I had the strength and the group around me to be able to take the training wherever we needed to go to get it done. Well, take us to the day or, or night as it was at the 5,000 when it finally arrived. Athletes lose it before the race has even begun. So you've got the whole process of the training and the preparation and the expectation and the village um, and then the warm-up area, which a lot of people don't really understand, which was at Olympic Park, which is where the warm-up area was for the 1956 Olympics. So you've got to go in there a particular amount of time before your event you start your warm-up 
Then you've got to go to a call room where they check your bags, they check your spikes, they check your equipment, they make sure everybody's there. And in this case, for the Com Games at the MCG, you were put on a bus from call room one, you were driven out of Olympic Park, up Punt Road, and then into the MCG underground car park, and you went into the Richmond Footy Club changing rooms, and that was call room two. And all of this is being done with the 14 other people that you've got to race against. So you're sitting on the bus next to the guy you're trying to beat trying to have a little bit of a conversation with someone that you couldn't give a stuff about. And then you go into the change rooms there and then it's the second call room. They check your gear again. They make sure everyone's there. And then you take it to a third call room where they give you your hit numbers and then you let out on the track. And at the MCG, you walk up the ramp. As all the footy players and all the you know everyone that competed at the MCG would know this, it's a cauldron. You go in, it was dark. It was about 9.50 p.m. I think when I ran my 5k so it was pitch black you could only see the stars and the lights coming down from the floodlights that were lighting the whole joint up so it was very intimidating but I was really relaxed throughout the whole process and you could see a lot of other athletes that were either new to it or hadn't prepared well enough for it it just it breaks them down and they get to the start looking to get out of it where I was at the start line really looking forward to getting into it. Have you got memories of looking around the MCG as you came out or were you that focused that you just didn't really want to take elements of it in? A bit of both. You don't want to look around too much because it takes your breath away. Um, and I know, you know, this is about the Commonwealth Games, but when you go to the Olympics and things like that, you do try to look at the flame and, and just appreciate where you are and, and the circumstances that you're in. And the Commonwealth Games, obviously, you come out of the, the Richmond change rooms up onto the track. Um, and obviously, my mum and dad were in the stands, so you, you can't see them, but you know roughly where they are. So you have a bit of a look around in that sort of area. Um, they were on the home straight, about halfway down the middle of the home straight. So you do, you have a look around, but there's not one particular thing that I, that I could tell you caught my eye. So Mottram's away and with Lloyd won, he's an Olympic champion. So Mottram has to beat a world champion here in Limo. So Buster with 80,000 behind him and millions around Australia urging him on. And the three Kenyans, Limo, Abuya and Chogay. And my approach to the racing was always, you know, if you give your best, you can accept the result. And I took the same approach into that event. And I actually spoke to a person, Stufa his name is, or Stephen Leary, uh, it was a good mate of mine, helped me with preparations and things like that, keeping it really simple for me. And he said, mate, it's really easy. Just go left, go straight, go left, go straight and repeat it until you hear the bell. And when you hear the bell, go a bit harder. And and that's how I approached it. Yes, there was 100,000 people in there. But to be honest, you don't notice that. You hear the noise, but if you're prepared well and you're running well, you don't actually remember it. So the ones that you do and deliver really well, your best results, you don't remember the actual process of the race. The ones that go poorly, you remember every step of them because you're trying to find a way out. But the races that go well, you look back at it and yes, you know the result, but it's very difficult to pinpoint certain parts in that race because you are so switched on and in the moment that you can't define any one particular part of it. And if I look back to the race, I remember the Commonwealth Games, I remember the result, I remember the press conference afterwards and all of that, but I don't remember every lap like I if I watch the video I go I didn't know I did that or oh wow I didn't realize that person was there or you know those sort of things so I think from that perspective it showed I was completely in the zone I think athletes call it in the zone but it was a fascinating experience and to to look back at it now I'm I'm 100% satisfied with everything we did and I can't, couldn't have done it any better so Craig's just I reckon where he wants to be sitting on Choge, Limo and Abuya they've done the first lap and it's the split coming up about 63, 64 sets, so it's enough. Tell us about the strength of the field and 
it was quite amazing to watch the race back and, and see you with the, the three Kenyans in front and the three Tanzanians behind you as, as the race started to evolve. In 2005, Ben Limo won the World Championships. The Kenyan guy won the World Championships. I was third in that. He didn't want to come to the Commonwealth Games because he wanted to have a bit of a break and prepare for some other things later in the year. So I got Maury Plant, who was my agent at the time, to speak to his agent and tell him we wanted him to come out because we wanted to give credit to the event. We wanted to make sure that I was up against the world champion and we wanted to have a really good battle at the MCG and give Australian supporters something, you know, a world-class event to look at. So he agreed to come out, but he said only if he could bring his training partner, which is a guy called Augustine Chogi, and we said, yeah, you can bring whoever you want, doesn't matter. (laughs) The challenge with some of these big international races and racing around Europe in the sport of athletics is you're just not sure who you're running against. We'd never heard of this Augustine Chogi guy. We just thought he was Ben's training partner and he went and ran out of his skin. So it's it's exciting, but that's the challenge of the sport of track and field is people can come from from anywhere and the depth is phenomenal and events like the com games in middle distance in particular if you're in the field you're a chance to win and one of the guys that often gets overlooked from that 5k field is mo farah who finished 12th or 13th i think in that field he was actually he was training with me in australia for the three or four months leading up i mean he's gone on to be the best arguably one of the best middle distance runners to have ever lived so the field was was deep all the way down to 13, 14 and 15. For a lot of these people, Bruce, seeing Mottram in person for the first time against these Kenyan runners, and it's quite amazing how much he really does tower over him. What do they call him? The big Mazungo. They do. He's the big white man on the circuit, and he is fearless. So did the race go to plan? Yeah, it went to plan. Look, we had two different options. If it was slow, I would go to the front four or five laps to go uh, and start to drive the pace and wind it up. And then if it was quick, I'd just wait a little bit longer and go to the front within 1,200 metres to go, so 1,200 to, to a K to go and try to wind it up. Um, we didn't anticipate that the three Kenyans would roll turns like they did and run as quickly as, as they did. We certainly didn't feel it would be under 13 minutes. Um, but you get a sense of it straight away. Once the gun goes, their intent was laid pretty quickly. Ben Augustine and Joseph Abuya, who were the three Kenyans, had obviously decided that's what they were going to do. He can work in with them. He can make out he's part of them. He's good enough to go with them. And at the moment, they're just taking it in turns. It's Limo, Shoge, Abuya and Mottram. And I think Craig is just where he wanted to be with nine laps to go. That was a fast lap, 61-4. They're moving now. But that played more in my hands than a slow race like the one in Helsinki. The faster pace with a wind-up at the end is more my strength. So... I was happy with that. Five to go. Mottram still in the box seat. He's sitting fourth. He's sitting on them. They've done 3K and 7.53. It's a really solid gallop is this one. It is everything we hoped for and then some. About four or five weeks before that event, I was in Ballarat but came down to Melbourne to do a session at Doncaster Athletics Track and Ron Clark actually came down to watch. So he'd always give me a little bit of feedback on how races went and write me letters and all that sort of stuff, which was fantastic. And he came down to watch me train. So we did a session and then we were going to do a mile in preparation so to simulate what that would look like that last four laps and i had my watch on and i was about to start the rep and it was try to run 63 61 59 57 so build the pace up and he said what are you wearing a watch for and i said oh just to get the splits and he said are you going to have that when you're at the mcg and i said no and he goes take it off so i took the watch off and it said run it on feel because that's what you're going to have to do when you're out there you can't just look at your watch and take splits when you're running in a race like that so learn to run on feel and that was what i did and and i hit the times as required so Mottram moves up. We've got a mile to go. This is what we said would happen, that Mottram would kick it in about here. It's Limo, Choge, Mottram. 
Mottram sucking it in here, 62.8. Shogay is beginning to heat up, and Mottram goes with him. He's in second place. They passed that 1500 where he was going to make his move. Three laps to go. Shogay leads. 19 years of age. Mottram towers over him in the head-on shot. It looks like a giant against a pixie with three to go. In third place is Abuya, and then Limo and Joseph. It's the best of Africa against the best from Australia. And now Mottram's thinking about taking over and taking the lead. And Mottram takes the lead down the back straight with two and a half laps to go. The noise caught my ear. That, that was one thing. And I remember listening to Kathy Freeman talk about her run at the Sydney Olympics. I think it was Bruce McAvaney asked her what the noise was like. And she gave an answer, which at the time I thought was absolutely bizarre. She said, oh, it's like sticking your head under the water in the spa and turning the jets on. And I remember sitting at the dinner thinking, what a stupid answer that is. But then when I was running around at the MCG in the 5K, when I went to the front with about three or four laps to go, I remember laughing to myself because it said, I thought, shit, it sounds exactly like that. It's just a really high-pitched noise that reverberates through you and it almost feels like it lifts you up off the ground. And, and that's a really exciting time but it's a really challenging time because you're trying to deliver on something you've practiced and you've got all this emotion that surges through you telling you to go faster but you know you've still got three or four laps to go so it's about managing that that effort and that energy and absorbing the noise and feeling the environment but not using it to take away from what it is you're trying to deliver. Mottram makes the run not the long run for home that's on the next lap but he's two metres in front, and what he has to do now is take the kick out of Chogay. It was a quick last lap, 55.07. It's a race in two now. It's Mottram and Chogay down the back straight as the flash bulbs pop. They've got about 600 metres to go in this epic battle, and it's going to be the two of them to fight it out. So when you hit the front, did you think the race was yours? I was in control of the race. I didn't think it was mine because obviously those guys are quality runners. Um, I can feel, You can feel people dropping off one at a time, and, and that's the idea. When you go to the front, it's a push to the finish. You can't go to the front and, and then slow the pace down. It's always when you hit the front, it's driving all the way to the finish. So you've got to keep accelerating, accelerating all the way. And then the confidence comes when you start to feel people behind you struggle. Um, so I obviously knew Joseph dropped, Ben Limo dropped. So I was confident with that, but I couldn't shake Augustine. One lap from glory. It's so fast. This is a remarkable race. They're going to break 13 minutes. It's an astonishing sight here with 80,000 people roaring him on. Does he have that big kick to hold? He was the first person to get onto the back of me. And in the last 600 or last 800, so two laps, he was clipping my heels quite a bit, which is a sign that he's running over the ground really nicely. He's in contact. You know at that point if, if he's still with you with 300 to go and it's very difficult to hold them out because when you're at the front, it's not like cycling. There's not a huge drafting benefit from following. There is a little bit but it's more the relaxation and that control of knowing where the person in front of you is. So for me, being at front, it's a little bit harder to be there. So I knew at the bell that I was in trouble, that um, he was going to come past me at some point, and then I just had to do my best to, to try to hold him out. Shogay's coming at him now, and Shogay takes the lead down the back straight. Craig's not done yet. He must hang on at this point. 200 to go, Shogay two. Three, Mottram's got to try and hang on. Joe Gay's away. Joe Gay's four metres in front. 
Mottram can't get him now. Joe Gay's going to spoil the party, but I tell you, it's been one of the best parties I've ever been to because this is outstanding running. Joe Gay sails away and runs 12.56, and Mottram has run one of the great races you'll ever see for second. It was sensational. Joe Gay has won, but Mottram tonight has run his way into the hearts of all Australians. He still had quite a bit left in the tank, I think, to be honest, at the end, which is scary because we were moving pretty quickly. He's a phenomenal athlete. For the last mile of that 5K, I ran 3.57. And for the last mile, the guy that won it ran 3.56, 3.55, high 3.56. So to run under four minutes for the last mile of a 5K in a kickdown under 13 minutes is... I don't think there's many people in the world that are doing that now. So, yeah, it worked out exactly as we thought or we hoped it would. It was just one guy better. I think Mottram's performance tonight is as good as I've ever seen from any Australian distance runner, and I'm not just saying that. But I did it exactly as I wanted to do it, so I can be really happy in that. Can't do any more. This was his moment, Hutto, in a way. Yeah. Um, and whilst he didn't get the result that would have completely satisfied him, we couldn't have asked for any more. So it was, it was just a... A great experience to be a little part of it. When you hit the line, though, you've come second. Is it a mixture of emotions or are you just, I'm proud, I've executed as well as I can? Oh, you're gutted at that point. I'd be, I'd be lying if I said I was happy with how I went, you know, in the 20 minutes after the, the race. You, you're disappointed because you planned and dreamed about trying to, well, winning. And I honestly felt that I was in shape to win. So you sit at home and at night and you dream and visualise around what that's going to be like, the last 200 metres running into the home straight and, and leading into the finish line at, at the MCG. So to not get that opportunity to do that and coming into the home straight for the final time knowing that I couldn't win was heartbreaking at the time. But in knowing the time and seeing the clock when we finished, you sort of shake your head and think, well, far out. That couldn't do any more than that. You know, we've run quickly. I was just beaten by a better guy. But that realisation doesn't come to you until later. What did you do that night then, knowing that you had to, <laughs> had to come back and race again? So when you finish those races, you walk off the track. There's, there's media to do. There's press to, to talk to. And I was approached by Asada and WADA for anti-doping testing, which is, was pretty normal. And that means they, they then got to follow you everywhere you go until you pass a urine sample. So we had to give blood and urine. Because the warm-up track was at Olympic Park, it was a long way to go with, with a chaperone, given that I lived in Richmond. I just wanted to go straight home. So I asked if I could do a bit of a jog in the car park of the MCG, and they said no, because there's too many people exiting the G and everything else. And at that point, the groundsman of the MCG walked past, and he said, oh, Craig, do you need to warm down? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, you can use the infield of the MCG for as long as you like, and when you're done, give me a thumbs up, and I'll turn the lights off. So I went from having 100,000 people screaming their heads off in the 5K to then walk back out onto the infield of the MCG where it was silent. There were only the people cleaning up the rubbish from the stands out there and, and one photographer because there was a photo of it and I've still got it. Um, and just me running around the infield of the track in silence, just debriefing with myself and, and my coach at the time actually came out and jogged a couple of laps as well. And then and the chaperone from the drug testing watching and then we walked off, gave the guy the thumbs up and you turn the lights off at the MCG. So I think from that is probably the biggest and coolest lasting memory that I have of running at the MCG was actually the 20 minutes afterwards when I got to have it to myself. And I remember taking my son to the footy, Christian, to the footy two or three years ago. And um, he was only young and I sat up in the stands and watched it. And I said to him, Christian, you know, many years ago, dad owned the MCG for a night. And he, he just looked at me and laughed and said, no, no, the MCG is for football, dad. Um, so... 
Yeah, look, it was an amazing experience, um, all of that, in particular the, that time after the race where um, I got to spend some time at the MCG by myself, um, just running around and re, re sort of hashing in my mind everything that had happened and then trying to emotionally come down from that and then knowing that I had to run again later in the week in the 1500. So that was, that was a, a really interesting and, and challenging time. And then just literally walking home through the MCG car park um, to my house in Stanley Street was a surreal experience as well because it was just like we'd been at training at Olympic Park and finished the session and then just walking home, debriefing and chatting about the run and, and going home, having a shower. Mum had made me lasagna. She, she obviously not living with me, but she'd made me lasagna um, and dropped it in the fridge earlier in the day. And I had that for dinner at about 1 a.m., went to bed and got up the next day like it hadn't happened. That must have been weird, walking back through the park and uh, yep. and then going home and having lasagna at 1 o'clock in the morning. It, it was it was bizarre. And a lot of athletes stayed in the village, um, so they would get the bus back from, from their competition venue back into the village and the dining hall would be open and all of that sort of stuff. But I didn't enjoy the village once I got to this part of my career, I, it was a very unique environment in there. It was very high energy, intense and everything else. And when you've got to compete multiple ends of the week, so some people are going out, partying, having a good time and others are still trying to focus and compete. So I removed myself from the village um, once I got um, into that sort of middle and latter parts of my career just because I thought I could control the circumstances a bit better. Um, so having a house in Richmond and, and walking back there, was it was a bizarre experience when I got back into Stanley Street there were a couple of camera crews that were were sort of going up and down the street hoping to get a grab but we were able to duck into the house without um, being stopped by them and and then just having dinner and winding down try not to put the tv on because as soon as you put that on obviously you're watching what happened and recapping so that as soon as we'd finished everything to do with the 5k it was about refocusing my energies and efforts into preparing for the 1500 which was on four days later. In a moment, Craig relives that other dramatic race of his at the Commonwealth Games, the 1500 metres. But just a reminder that if you missed episode two, you missed the inspiring but ultimately tragic story from the Games of Karen McCann. It was a fairy tale that just burned out so quickly and it still has me shaking my head at times. It's tough, the, the, ride's, the ride continues, things are, are great for us. We've moved on to other chapters, but yeah, you, you still carry that heavy heart it's, it's still there, you know, a lot of the, the great stuff, but a, a lot of the pain's still pretty raw. The heartfelt words of Greg McCann are well worth listening to in episode two. And coming up in At The G, two extraordinary grand final finishes in a row. One of my brothers dropped a letter to me, which was really moving the night of the grand final, which talked about them being there with me, just being able to share the experience with them and knowing that they'd got me there and now it was time to kind of give a bit back. When Amon Buchanan, I think, put us in front and the crowd just erupted, that was just as big as Leo's mark. <laughs> the premiership's riding on that. That was a bloody incredible goal. When I kicked the goal, there was still maybe 10 minutes out, and I don't think there was another goal scored. They attacked famously, the ball come in and out at, right at their death, and Leo took the mark. So after that goal, it just felt like it was so long until the siren went. It was just instinct. You know, I probably just wheeled and, and tried to get in as deep as quick as I possibly could. Didn't want to get caught with the ball in the situation of where it was. Played a little bit of kick to kick with Leo, and the rest is history. 
it was like the, almost the uh, the ground was shaking. Ty Keneally, uh, my old Irish mate, jumped on my back, and you know it wasn't until then that we actually could realise the siren had gone because we couldn't even hear it. I, I saw a photo once. I think it was taken by a photographer from the Age. And there's Mark Seavey right behind Leo Barry with his hands beautifully outstretched, just ready to grab that Sharon. Now, if Leo had missed that, Seavey would have taken that, Mark, and he would have had a shot for goal after the final siren to win a grand final. That's never happened before. And what would your line have been if Mark Seavey had taken the big mark? (laughs) Mark Seavey, you star! That's coming soon. But now back to the dramas of the Commonwealth Games of Craig Mottram. I was nervous for the 1500, much more so than the than the 5K, um, because the 1500 is, is obviously substantially shorter. And if you make a mistake, it's very difficult to correct it in a 1500, where in a 5K, you've got time to move back into the race and, and settle into a rhythm again. Where in the 1500, the pace is generally on and um, you've got to be where you want to be exactly when you want to be there. Otherwise, the race can get away from you. So that part of it made me a little bit more nervous. And I wasn't as experienced in 1500 running as I was in the 5K. So for those that don't remember, what happened? <laughs> well, it's let's talk cruel, about the positive, it? right? <laughs> so I uh, qualified in the heat really well. And from that, I got a lot of confidence. Generally with running, you don't know how you're going to feel until you get in, into the race itself. So the unknown is what makes people really nervous that feeling of um, insecurity around what if I don't feel good or what if my legs are heavy or what if I can't find the rhythm with my breathing, all of that sort of stuff is what gets athletes unsettled. They, they worry about things they can't control. But the heat actually gave me the confidence to know that my legs had recovered, I felt really good and I was going to be okay. I was going to settle for the first 800 or two laps and then I was going to run like I stole something in the third lap and try to run a 55, 56 second lap clear out or stretch the field to the point that they wouldn't be able to get past me like what happened in in the 5k and then enjoy the last 100 meters in the home straight run on to victory in the 1500 that's how it was visualizing in my mind mccormick leads and it's a steady pace willis is second and mottram is third everything was going okay up until about 750 into the race so just prior to when i was going to accelerate and take off i was on the shoulder of nick willis which is exactly where i wanted to be one back, one wide, if you like, in horse racing terms. So they're coming up to 800. McCormick happy to lead. Oh, there's a fall. Mottram's gone down. Mottram's gone down. Well, unbelievable. It's just one of those nights, isn't it? A 60-second lap. Mottram has gone down. There was a bit of a scuffle from behind. Andy Baddeley fell. He fell onto my foot, and then I tripped and fell um, down to the ground. So it was a bit of a comedy of errors. I can see Nick Badeau, who's 10 metres away oh. from us, his head in his hands. Craig Mottram has gone down and one of the Kenyans is in trouble as well. Well, oh. a disaster here. It was nobody's, no one in particular's fault. It was just one of those racing incidents. And I fell before I knew what I was on the ground and got back up and, and ran and Look, I don't know where I finished, but I had really had no hope of catching up at that point because there were quality athletes in that field. Nick Willis, who's been one of the best 1,500-metre runners in the world, won the race. So that was a quality field as well. Second place is Willis. I wonder if they know where Mottram is. Craig is out of it. He's got no chance at all here. In fact, Willis has had a good long look. He's in second place, and he looked back, and he saw that Mottram's out of it. Well, shades of John Landy and Ron Clark all those years ago. He's chasing hard. How hard was it to finish that race? Now, I know you had to, but how hard was it to hold it all together for that, knowing that you couldn't possibly win? Yeah, look, it was. there was a moment where I thought I could catch up and, you know, like a John Landy, Ron Clark sort of moment there where I thought maybe I could catch up. But the way 1500s are run and the way 
a lot of the championship events happen these days, it's a wind up from you know seven eight hundred meters out. So that means the pace is getting quicker and quicker and quicker um, in the second half of the race. So the first half of this race was quite slow, which meant the second half was going to be really fast. So to lose three or four seconds. Um, at that point in the race makes it really difficult to catch up. And that's that's not an excuse. They're just the facts. So the realisation of that sets in and then it's just a matter of trying to keep it in check. And, and I remember thinking this coming into the straight that, that every camera in this place will be on me and they'll be looking for a reaction. Um, and this is going back to that point in the 5K where I said, when you're in the zone, you're not thinking about anything. You're just, you're just in it and you're, and you're sort of focusing on what you're doing and, and you can't remember. But I can remember every step of that last 100 of that 1500 because it hadn't gone the way I wanted and I was looking for a way out. So you're no longer th- focusing on your performance. You're focusing on what, what everyone else is thinking and what everything around you is doing. So coming down the home straight, I was thinking, oh, I wonder what mum and dad are thinking. Uh, and then coming over the, the finish line, you know, don't, don't do anything you don't need to do. Make sure you go find out who won. Go and congratulate them. You know, I've got to say well done to Nick and well done to Mark Fountain for finishing third. He was the other Australian in the field, actually, who gets overlooked quite a lot. So he he was fantastic. He got the bronze medal. So it was to go and cre- congratulate those guys and then go and deal with my own emotion and then come back and, and address the questions that were going to be asked. My parents, my dad in particular, was always very firm on being fair and reasonable but brutal in the contest. So never give up. Always fight to the death. Win, lose or draw you've got to respect everyone that you've competed against. So I just sort of defaulted back to that. Yeah, look, it didn't go my way, but that doesn't give me the right to, to be disrespectful to those that, that delivered their best result on the day. So that's that's what we did and that's that's how I played it. My younger brother, Neil, who was playing for the Boomers, they had their gold medal game for the Boomers on the same night. So mum and dad had to decide whether they would go and watch Neil play for the Boomers and try to win the gold medal or come to the MCG and watch me try to win a gold medal in the 1500. And my mum and dad and my older brother, Andrew, all decided to come to the MCG to watch me run. And then because of the angle where they were, the um, discus and hammer throw cage was in the line of sight from where I fell. So they couldn't see that it was me that had fallen. They could just hear the crowd getting really loud. And then all of a sudden it went silent. And they were like, what happened? And then the, the field sort of came around and my brother's gone, oh, I think it was Craig. And sure enough, then I come flying around the back. My younger brother, Neil, they actually won the gold medal. He just still says to mum and dad, you made the wrong choice. You should have come with me. The gold medal, son, and all that. So that's always the banter at my house because I never won a gold medal. It was one of those moments where you didn't really realise the ramifications of it until now. That was probably one of the, the chances that – and you don't get many of them in your sporting career that, that slipped through where there was a gold medal there to be had and unfortunately it didn't happen. You sort of wish you could have that time again but you can't and that's just the way it is. Did it drive you from, from then on or was it something you just sort of put behind you? It doesn't drive me because it, if I'd made a mistake – and it was something, the fault of my own, then that would probably frustrate me and drive me. But at the end of the day, it became more of a laughing incident. You know, I'd go to training and the boys would trip themselves over or they'd do something or whatever. <laughs> they'd create a bit of a joke about it. My brother thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread, at, you know, in terms of, of that. So for, from that point, it, it became more entertainment and, and that's the way I tried to, to look at it. Um, and I remember that the day after that, so that was the Saturday night, the Sunday um, was my granny's 80th birthday. And I remember telling uh, my coach and the manager at, um, leading into that 1500, no matter what happens, win, lose or draw, I've said to my granny, I'm going to her 80th in Geelong. 
um, on the Sunday. So I went home. Um, I remember I was up in the shower in my in my bathroom, and this is immediately after the race. And two of my really good mates walked into the bathroom. This is it's not it's not X rated or anything. This, but they walked into the bathroom with with a slab of beer on their shoulder. They actually stripped down into their undies and they got in the shower with me, put the slab on the floor, and said, "Let's just crack on and and have a good night." And we didn't talk about it. We went out to the last lap and we went to the, the Richmond Hotel and all those sort of places and, and had a good night just talking about anything other than falling over in the 1500, albeit all over the big screens everywhere we went. And then the next day I got up, had a little bit of a hangover, went down to Geelong to my granny's 80th. I, she answered the door when I got there and she said, oh, how did you go, dear? And I said, oh, look, not that well. I, I fell over last night, granny, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, oh, are you happy with that? And I said, no, not really. And we had a bit of a laugh about it and, and we moved on. And it wasn't until... A couple of days later that I was out running myself in Faulkner Park in Melbourne, that the reality of the situation and the opportunity that had been missed sunk in. So I was out for a run and then actually stopped and had a bit of a walk for five minutes. And I'm quite emotional. And I'm not really an emotional person, but it was kind of overwhelming for about five or ten minutes where I was like, far out. That, that's all said and done now. And I didn't get anything that I wanted out of it. I didn't get a gold medal. Um, I didn't get to hear the national anthem. Anything that, we, that I draw, everything that I dreamed about, achieving in terms of that reward if you like or gold medal and hearing the national anthem I didn't get so that was that was frustrating but in terms of of delivering everything I could from an effort perspective I I did I gave it everything I focused hard during that week and and I think I dealt with everything that was put in front of me as best that I could and and I can only hang my hat on that and what wonderful insights into the biggest week of Craig Mottram's running life there was certainly no shortage of drama But before all of the heroics of the likes of Mottram and Karen McCann, the Games had got underway in spectacular style at the opening ceremony. Organising Committee Chair Ron Walker was determined Melbourne would put on a show. And that's exactly what they did, under the guidance of Jack Morton. Its various themes celebrated Australia and Melbourne in many different guises, and giant fish lit up the Yarra on a path to the MCG, where an incredible engineering feat of a W-class tram flying down from above took the breath away of the PAC Stadium. Mark Sheldon, who is now Technical Director of Oricon, remembers how he and his team met the technical challenge, with the audacity of the feat coming through in the 3AW broadcast led by Clinton Gribus, Bruce Mansfield and Philip Brady. And look high above the Great Southern Stand, you'll find one of Melbourne's icons, a W-class tram, look its sprouted wings. The great symbol of Melbourne coming in. The flashing lights on the front of the tram, the wings, isn't it marvellous? They contacted us and said, we want to hang all this stuff off the roof. And, you know, there's all sorts of things they were talking about. And we, we did some initial uh, look at it and thought, well, actually, you're not going to be able to do this. And they kind of said, well, we've got to do it somehow or other. So, so we sort of started thinking and said, well, actually, we, we can probably make use of the, of the existing light towers because the, the light towers were designed back in the mid-80s to be able to withstand some pretty high wind speeds, you know, 160k an hour wind speeds. So we thought, all right, well, let's back work what the capacity of the light towers would be and then try and make use of that residual capacity. And we started looking into that and thought, hang on, this, this might work. So that's probably how it sort of developed. And we, we did a full 3D analysis of the whole thing. Um, we worked out the stresses in each of the cables. All of the cables were, were 
oversized to have oodles of uh, additional capacity so that uh, at no stage was there ever going to be any safety issues. It was absolutely amazing here, Bruce. We were all the way under it. People didn't know where to look and then all of a sudden out of nowhere a big tram with wings comes on it and like Fitton says, the sparks coming off the back of it, flash bulbs going off right around this spectacular stadium. The tram itself was one of about, oh, I think there were about nine different scenarios they came up with total of 13 cables uh, from, from, from the six light towers. We designed the, the mechanism inside the tram to make, because it had some wings that flapped as well, and uh, <laughs> you know, they only, only went very gently. The, the, the tram itself was parked on the roof of the Great Southern Stand. Um, you could actually see it or when you arrived from Richmond Station. You could sort of see it sitting there, but not many people did. I saw it because I knew it was there, but uh, it was just uh, it was a bit of fun. There are people inside that tram, Clinton. No, I have to so. wait and see. It wouldn't be the Queen arriving, would it? <laughs> You'll have to wait and see. It's going to land on this stage, this inverted saucer, which it's been dubbed. Because I got asked for years after it, how many people were actually in that tram when it flew off the roof? And... Uh, the answer was zero. Uh, the key to the whole thing was we had to be able to land it right on a spot that was actually a slightly raised bit of um, uh, stage and there was about 40 people hidden underneath the stage and so the tram had a trapdoor in the bottom of it and there was a trapdoor in the top of the stage and so uh, as soon as the tram landed the two trapdoors were open and the people jumped out from the stage and ran out and uh, it worked fantastic because everyone was just absolutely convinced that all these people were coming out of the tram. It was, uh, it was great. And uh, you'll very shortly see some citizens of Melbourne exiting from the tram because it's inspired by the Collins Street 5pm painting of John Brax. The arena has been transformed into a Melways map. There's a lot of people coming out of that tram. Where did they, are they all getting there? Oh, it was pretty cool. Um, so the creatives come up with all the ideas and uh, you know, they'd call us the grown-ups. We'd say, well, we have to talk to the grown-ups about this one and, uh, and we'd have to try and uh, work out. But I knew, they said, well, you're going to be sitting in the control room on the night, so this has all got to work. And I thought, oh, gee, this is going to be a lot of pressure for me. So uh, we worked out for each of the different scenarios, including the tram, what was the absolute maximum wind speed on the night that that load could go onto the series of cables that was holding everything up and not cause any dramas. And, but I didn't want to be the person on the night to be telling them that you couldn't do something, So uh, which they said to me, well, you got, you're going to be in the, in the control room, so... You know, we're going to be looking at you, Mark. What are we going to be doing? So I, said, I thought, all right, well, what am I fix these guys up? <laughs> I put together a little laminated scorecard, basically, and I had a green zone and an amber zone and a red zone. And we had anemometers all around the place um, measuring the wind speed you know, in real time. And if the wind speed was below a certain amount, then they were in the green zone, no problems. It was in the amber zone. It's starting to get up there, guys. And, uh, and basically, if it was in the red zone, you're on your own. That's the zone where my figures basically said, well, you know, um, I, I can't safely say that you can uh, perform this. It, it started to get into the amber zone a bit. Um, we were starting to get a little concerned on a couple, but uh, fortunately the wind uh, played its part. It didn't actually get up too high and, uh, and they were able to perform everything. The Queen's Baton Relay plays an important promotional role in the Games, in similar fashion to the journey of the Olympic torch. The final stages are always a closely guarded secret. In 2006, it featured the AFL captains, including Melbourne skipper David Neitz. There's the 
Queen's Patton approaches its final destination, the MCG. David Neitz is now presenting the pattern to Ron Barassi. It was a fantastic experience, really, to be involved and to be part of that opening ceremony. Such an enormous thing, really, in, in Melbourne and in Australia at that time. You know, Michael Voss and a whole range of um, AFL players are part of it. So it was a, it was a huge honour. And it was, it was a bit of a strange thing, uh, walking through the mid middle of the Yarra River on the pontoons and then, uh, of course, passing it over to the great Ronald Dale. Ron Barassi has now been handed the baton and he will now make his way up the stairs where Herb Elliott is waiting at the top of the, the stairs. Oh, he's walking. He's walking on water, Dennis. We've always said Ron Barassi can do it all, and right now he's doing it in the full-length white runner's uniform. He holds the baton aloft in his right hand as he essentially walks on water towards the staircase. Were you really confident when you stepped out that you were going to be stepping onto something? Oh, yes. This, we'd done this at rehearsal. This had been rehearsed about three times. Not just my part, but... Uh... Yeah, there's a lot of things that had to be coordinated. Uh, one o'clock in the morning, by the way, was rehearsal time. Really? So nobody knew you were doing it? Was that the reason? It was that one was a reason for that, yeah. yes. But, uh, <laughs> one o'clock in the morning, wandering around in the Yarra. Unbelievable. How wide was the little uh, was the plank or whatever it is you walked uh, on? I'd say to be about uh, 1.1 metres. I mean, that was the big thing if you fell in. They were conscious of you not falling into the river. Well, anyone, who, the players too. We're all getting stuck into Ron beforehand, making sure that he just kept his balance. We're a bit concerned, <laughs> but um, but no, it was a great experience. What were they saying <laughs> in Mumbai, India, when you did it? Who is this silly <laughs> old right. Yeah, I don't. Well, I don't know. I was just concentrating on not making an idiot of myself. Really. This is just truly a fantastic visual image to be been... transported around the world. Oh, it's just absolutely amazing. And to see these two spotting, two sporting icons and the fireworks have just gone off under the Swan oh, Street Bridge. look at that. And right now, all of the problems that people talked about into the lead-up to the games oh, have been totally forgotten. Totally this forgotten. moment has made it all the more worthwhile. There goes Ron. He walks up the stairs and he now hands the baton to Herb Elliott. And there it goes. Changes hands. I, I felt I was representing uh, sports lovers. Aussie football, Victorians, Australians, Melburnians, it was a, it was a real thrill. Don't worry about that. One of the uh, greatest honours in your career, do you think? Yes, most definitely. Most definitely. Despite the spectacular show for Steve Monaghetti, it's still the arrival in the stadium of the home athletes that can't be beaten. I really just paid attention to the Australian team as they came in, the roar of the crowd, and it's genuine. You know, it's, a, you know, it's incredible to... you can hear it on TV, you can hear the replays and all that. When you are there, it is deafening. Australia. And what a moment for Jane Savile. Her fourth Commonwealth Games, and she's the flag bearer, the first walker to get this honour. This is the time when the, the personal moment for the athletes, when they can say, yes, I am, I am here representing my country on the world stage in, in whatever sport it might be. And from that moment forward, you are a Commonwealth Games athlete. For Craig Mottram, the opening ceremony was made all the more special by marching with his basketball-playing brother. We'd arranged to catch up prior to the 
the opening ceremony and, and be together walking in and we got a bit of video footage and some photos of it and, and emotions were high. It's pretty rare to, to be in a major team representing your country with a sibling. There's plenty of other families that have that opportunity to represent their country together in various parts of the world. To be able to do it in Melbourne in your backyard when your mum and dad are in the stands and, and all of the fun and the games that can come around that and the banter and everything else was pretty awesome. Um, and to be quite honest, we, we haven't probably reminisced on it as much as we should. He's now finished up with his basketball career and, and I'm finished up with running, obviously. But we, we were very lucky. I was very lucky in my career to have multiple international events in Australia. And Neil, obviously, to, to get to play for Australia and, and win a gold medal in Australia in Melbourne is, is phenomenal. So we, we were both very lucky and very blessed. And I'm sure as time goes on, we'll look back at it even more fondly than we did at the time. It now gives me the greatest pleasure to declare the 18th Commonwealth Games open. So the Games began, and as Dave Colbert remembers, there's no shortage of other stories from that week on the track that can still be told, including the likes of John Stephenson and Jana Pittman. There are Australian athletes that wanted to make their mark, and Jana was one. Steve Hooker um, won the pole vault, a young Steve Hooker. Then um, Bromwell Thompson won the long jump. Scotty Martin, when he jumped the fence to hug his coach, Gus Palopolo, and, and that fence has never recovered after he, he won the discus and raced to the to the sidelines. They're the moments that you remember. Um, and Stephenson, from the second he put the blocks in, he was a showman. who he, he wanted to make it his stage, and he did. And, you know, it was the best 400-metre race he ever run, ran in his career. He made a final of the World Championships. He was a silver medalist in the relay at the Olympics. I would have loved to have competed in a home games. Imagine standing behind your blocks or at the end of the runway and having 75, 80, 90,000 people clapping just for you. That's pretty unique. Well, former Melbourne Cricket Club CEO Stephen Goff and running great Steve Monaghetti have no doubt the MCG played a huge role in the great success of the Games. Look, there were some fabulous moments. Commonwealth Games were getting a bit of a bashing in the media about being the second-rate sort of event, and yet the MCG hosted it and we had record crowds for Commonwealth Games. And one of the things that struck me was particularly the behaviour of the fans compared to AFL and cricket. They picked up all their rubbish and put it in bins and it was a rather unique event for us in terms of spectators at the G. I remember walking down Flinders Street. The road must have been closed. I think we were just walking down the middle of the road. And it was incredible that people were just so alive and you were relating stories of the night with pure strangers you'd never met before. So there was this really positive vibe. I don't think there's been a better time in Melbourne, not in my lifetime. And when we had the games, the atmosphere and the spectacle that we put on and the way the games were held. And, you know, to Ron Walker's credit, he did an amazing job. The walk back from the G, it's a pretty special thing. I think we all got a story walking back from the G or walking to the G. So, you know, that was really embodied in the Commonwealth Games, the, the spectators and the supporters who really embraced the games. Uh, I'm a big proponent of the regional games like that. It's not the Olympics and no one thinks it is but it's not the school sports either and we saw that you know across a range of events during the commonwealth games it brought melbourne to life you know australians were into it and i have to say you know during the games and during 1956 the mcg's never looked better than with an athletics track on it Hutto. you know you don't realize you think the mcg is a big ground they had to take i think the first three or four rows out of the stadium to fit the track in so incredible that gee tracks are big I do, you don't kind of realize how big they are and i think intimacy of having a, a crowd so close to you and such a massive 
arena for, for track athletes, it's often quite a windy, open, sparse environment, a running track, because it's obviously normally pretty flat and wide and open. So to have this massive coliseum and then have the track laid in the middle of that, it, it's almost got that historical Athens history feel about it. And I think, you know, I, I actually got to run on the track. We had our, I think, our, the Victorian titles as a bit of a test running around the state. There wasn't there wasn't that many people, not too many spectators that, that afternoon, I don't think. But to be running around there, you're pinching yourself thinking, am I actually running around here on, on a track on the MCG? This can't be real. Incidentally, Monaghetti was also the mayor of the Athletes' Village in Parkville. To be honest, I was the figurehead. There was a lot happening at the village. You could imagine just having a small city of such um, highly tuned athletes. Is that a, is that a way? So I don't want to say precious, but there may have been some precious um, athletes and team members and staff and that. So there was a lot happening. And I was basically the spokesperson and the person who would meet everybody as they came into the village, all the royalty that arrived and, and really the spokesperson and the face of the village. And as we leave the Commonwealth Games, at least for now, let's let Dave Calbert and former junior cricket star Steve Monaghetti share their feelings towards the G. Affection. What, an, what a great place that we call home. That it's, you know, I'm an MCC member, so I feel fortunate that I can go along. I look back to the 56 Olympics. I, I love looking at that mural on the wall with all the, the medalists that are carved in marble or whatever it is that sits there. I love the history of it all. I look back with great devastation at the losing St Kilda grand final teams. <laughs> you know, any chance that someone might go and stand next to Jarman in the third quarter of Adelaide St Kilda? <laughs> can the ball just bounce up into Stephen Milne's hands and he can waltz in and kick a... You know, can Matthew Scarlett not toe-poke the ball? So, like everyone, you have your own memories. I love the fact that it's an Olympic stadium and it's a Commonwealth Games stadium. It's an AFL stadium. It's a cricket stadium. The Women's World Cup T20 final Hutto was one of the great events there. Yep. You know, in athletics, we're lucky that we've had 100 years plus of almost of, of women in our sports. You know, Becky Cuthbert in 1956, she was the star of the Olympic Games, an Australian woman competing against the world's best. It's our stadium, Hutto. We love it. It's one of the things that makes Melbourne what it is, I reckon. I was quite a successful cricketer as a as a youngster, and, and I remember going there with my brother. Um, so I reckon that was probably the first time I went to the MCG was to watch um, Australia playing a test match. So I probably saw it as one of the world's great cricket grounds. My dad, who's 93 and still alive, was the greatest disappointment of his life that I never wore the baggy green. But four Olympic Games, four Commonwealth Games and six World Championships later, he's slowly getting over it, Hunter. The great Steve Montaghetti sharing his memories of the 2006 Commonwealth Games. And it's been fantastic to chat to Steve, Dave Colbert, the one and only Bruce McAvaney, and of course, Craig Mottram, who was so generous with his memories and insight. A big thanks too to the Commonwealth Games Federation, Channel 9 and Radio 3AW for their fantastic audio of the Games. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google and Spotify podcasts and leave us a review or join the conversation on Twitter at MCC underscore members. I can't wait till next episode, so join me then for two great grand finals at the gym.